Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Let's bow our heads. Loving Father, we thank you again for the fact that you are God alone. We can always trust and depend upon you, Lord. We seek a word from you this morning. Give us understanding. Grant us thy spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. We are continuing our series on the present truth and the three angels' messages. For those of us who are visiting with us, this is um, the, yeah, the 13th part of the series based on the book, The Present Truth and the Three Angels' Message, written by yours truly. And today we are actually on the last part of the second angel's message of Revelation chapter 14. There are three messages, there are three angels in Revelation 14, verses uh, uh, 6 through 12. And so we are taught, we've been talking about the second angel's message specifically, uh, and today's our last part of the second angel's message. So Babylon is fallen. Under the subheading, what about eternity? You have a study guide in your bulletin, so you're welcome to take that out. And uh, the blanks will be um, filled by the words that are underlined on the screen. So Babylon is fallen, and what about eternity? Last uh, Sabbath, we talked a little bit about superstitions. Superstitions. There are plenty of superstitions out there. Do you have any superstitions? Hmm? The number 13, black cats, breaking a mirror, or walking under ladders may all be things you actively avoid. If you are anything like the 25% of people in the United States who consider themselves superstitious. Superstitions, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or seen this, but may explain why many buildings do not have a 13th floor. Yeah. Some airlines, such as Air France and Lufthansa, Lufthansa was in the news this past week because of an issue with turbulence. They don't have a 13th row in the plane. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Lufthansa also doesn't have a 17th row because in some countries like Italy and Brazil, 17th is the bad luck number. So they don't have a 13th row or a 17th row just because of superstitions. Isn't that interesting? And I shared with you last week a little bit of superstition. My mom, remember, I could not get my bedroom because the person that was living there before committed suicide by hanging himself from a tree behind the room where I was supposed to live, right by the window, so I didn't have my bedroom. There's another superstition I like to share with you today. I only heard it in my hometown there, San Sebastián. Um, where I lived, and it's something called, we call it in Spanish, un entierro. It's called, it's, it means a burial, a burial. It's very common uh, in the town that I was living in. You may well wonder, what is this about? Well, uh, as an example, in the town we lived in, there was a very influential and wealthy family. And uh, I remember the last name, Jimenez. And so again, very wealthy influential, and the, the, um, the legend was that they, the, they got rich because uh, a supernaturally a spirit of a rich man, a rich man that died, a spirit, came back and 
uh, uh, this person, when they were alive, they, uh, before they died, they buried their money. And so when they, uh, when they come back now as a spirit, the spirit contacts, don't know how the choice is made, but they contact a specific person or a specific family, and the spirit leads them to unbury the money. And so that was, that, <laughs> you laugh, but this was serious stuff in San Sebastian. People thought about it. And, and so that's why these people were rich, because they uncovered a burial money. And I remember... One time, my mom tells me that her, it was a Sunday morning, at dusk on Sunday mo- at dawn on Sunday morning, they, my, both my mom and my dad were awakened by a voice calling my dad's name. Now, my dad's name is Antonio, so, uh, um, so they called him Tonyin. That's how they, what they called him. And so the way my mom explains this is that they heard a voice calling from afar, They both heard it. This is just my mom. They both heard the voice. They both awakened by this voice. And so my dad thought, ah, this is my chance. I am getting my entierro. And he was getting up, putting his clothes on to get out there, and my mom was so scared. No, 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 please don't go. And she convinced him not to go. Who knows? We could have been rich. (laughs) This is the kind of thing, you know, superstitions that come from the belief of the immortality of the soul. So last time, uh, again, we, uh, let's go back to our scripture reading. Revelation chapter 14, verses 8. Verse 8, this is the second angel's message. Babylon is falling, is falling, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So last time we talked about this wine of the wrath of the fornication that causes the fall of Babylon. The wine consists of these false teachings that have confused the world, uh, 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 truth uh, or teachings that contradict the word of God. What we saw last last time is that no false teaching has caused more confusion than the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. No no, no doctrine has caused more confusion. People all over hear this. They believe it. We see it in Hollywood. We see it, you know, read in books. Now, you may wonder, well, okay, I, I understand this, but why is it that this doctrine in particular, the immortality of the soul, the belief that the soul is immortal, why is that part of the present truth? Why do we need to talk about this? Let me share you a statement from the book Great Controversy, page 588. Author Ellen White says it this way. Through the two great, great, through two, the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays a foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. So notice what she's saying here. There are two things. I mean, mind you, again, uh, if you read the book, you see that there's a number of other uh, beliefs that are within uh, Christianity that have their origin with Catholicism. But these two in particular, Sunday sacredness and immortality of the soul, this is how Satan is going to work out his master plan of deception. So why is this part of the present truth? Because we need to prepare a world for this. We need to prepare a world for this. 
Now we saw uh, in our presentation last Sabbath that death is referred to as what in the Old and New Testament? As a sleep, right? That is presented as a sleep. More than 70 passages in Scripture, both in Old and New Testament, say, uh, pre- pre- prevent or present death as a sleep. I provided you with a number of them in your study guide. We also talked about the word soul. Soul, the living being. We know that the soul, that's what the word means, the living being. You are a soul. I am a soul. By the way, uh, um, you know, I was uh, reminded by a conversation with David that, you know, the, the word soul and spirit are used interchangeably. Yeah, it's, that, it's, it's still seen as that entity, that bodiless entity that leaves uh, the body when a person dies and, and you know, it goes on living forever because it has immortality and, it, and if it has unfinished business, it sticks around, that kind of thing. But it's the same thing. Though. I mean, in, in the Bible, we know that the word spirit and the word soul are not the same thing. The word spirit, uh, ruach in, in Hebrew, which means that breath, right? A wind, whereas the word soul, nefesh, means a being, means a person. So in the Bible, they're not the same thing, but in, our, in, our underst- in people's understanding today, they use the, the words like synonyms, but it's not the same thing. But we know that, that, that a soul is a person, therefore a soul can die. Can a soul die? We saw that in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So if a soul can die, in the same, this word that is used for soul is the same word nephesh that we find in Revelation, or rather in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, which means a person. So clearly the word soul means a person. If the soul was immortal, it could not die. So the fact that Ezekiel says it dies, it tells us that it is not immortal. We understand that the concept of immortality of the soul came from Greek philosophy, from paganism, and it creeped into the church. We know that only God has immortality. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Speaking of God, he, will, he who is blessed and the only potentate, the, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in an approachable light, uh, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and glory, or honor and everlasting power. Amen. So alone, God immortality. So if he alone has immortality, it means that you don't. And since we don't possess immortality, we are told to seek immortality. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath, and revelation of the Lord of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. We are to seek for immortality because we don't have immortality. If we had immortality, then we wouldn't have to seek for it. It's just logical, friends. It's common sense. But now, what about eternity? What about eternity? Because there are passages in Scripture that, at the very least, if you read them superficially, they they seem to suggest that the punishment of the wicked lasts forever, meaning for ongoings without end in a place called hell. A place called hell. Now, you know, the idea, of course, is the, the righteous have a place that they're going to. Right? We know that, that, that Jesus had gone to prepare mansions for us when he's finished. He's coming back to take us there. There's a place where the, where the righteous go. So the idea is that the, the wicked have also a place to go. 
This is called hell, where, where this punishment seems to last forever and ever without end. Okay? And so, again, there's a number of passages in Scripture that seem to suggest this. And so we need to look at some examples of this so that we can see what is actually being said. Okay? So let's look at some of these passages. First one is Isaiah chapter 33, verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? So you, you, you see it there, this, this term, everlasting burnings. Okay? Now, as you already know, what is the secret for us to understand what a passage says? What do we need to do? Context. context. All right, you guys are learning. Context. Now, if we look at the context of chapter 33 and really in the next few chapters, we realize Isaiah is really talking about the impending judgment upon the kingdom of Assyria and its king, Sennacherib. And, and, and so this is basically the theme really until chapter 37. But I want you to notice, because a lot of times we just don't look carefully, the very same passage, this verse 14, in it, Isaiah tells us what everlasting burnings is. In the same passage. Think about it. He says, he talks about the, the uh, devouring fire. It's a parallelism in the Hebrew where he repeats something the same way. Who among us shall dwell with devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? So everlasting burnings and devouring fire is talking about the same thing. So everlasting fire is a devouring fire. Now this word everlasting there in, the, in this passage comes from the Hebrew olam, which means a long duration. What does it mean? A long duration. A long duration. Okay, everlasting this word that Isaiah used means for a long duration. Again, the, the problem that many people have is that they define everlasting today. Today, most people have an idea that the word everlasting means without end. And so they think, well, if that's what it means today, that must have been what it meant back then. But we must remember that this is a translation into English. In the original Hebrew, the word that is used, that is translated for everlasting, did not mean without end. It simply meant for a long duration. For a long duration. So notice, this is a fire. Uh, this is a fire that because it lasts for a long time, it completely destroys. It completely devours. And that's what Isaiah is saying there. Again, we need to look at these words and see what they really meant back then. This is how we interpret scripture. We can't apply today's meaning to the meaning back then because that's not proper uh, um, uh, way of studying scripture. Okay. So again, we see there that this fire, this everlasting fire, is a fire that devours because it burns for a long time. So that's one example of this word everlasting. Let's look at another one. Matthew chapter 18, verse 8. This is in the New Testament, the words of Jesus. And Jesus says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet be cast into the everlasting fire. Everlasting fire. Now you say it there, there is everlasting fire there. Jesus talks about it already. Well, the first thing we need to understand is that Jesus, in this passage, he is not talking about what happens when a person dies. That's not the main focus of the passage, right? 
He's making a little illustration, but the main focus of this passage is he's, ta- he's trying to teach us how to deal with sin in our lives. We ought to be bold by getting rid of sin in our lives. So this is why he said, listen, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, right? Be bold. Now, he's not obviously speaking literally. He's using symbolism to say, listen, you need to do what you need to do to get rid of sin in your life. But notice he says that it is better to have, uh, uh, you know, to be lame than to have two hands and two feet and go into everlasting fire. Now, this word everlasting, in the Greek, because math, uh, the New Testament is in the Greek, is the word aionios, which also means age long or simply for a long time. So it, the meaning is the same as olam in the Old Testament. The, the, the meaning is the same. Everlasting house is, is translated, it means for a long time, age long. Okay? But it does not mean that a fire that burns without end. Again, like in, he, in, in, in Isaiah, the fire burns for a long time, but eventually destroys what it's being burned. And it's really logical. It's common sense. It really is physics 101. That's what happens when, a, when something burns, right? An example of this, of course, we also see in Jude verse 7. Chapter 1 verse 7 only has one chapter. Speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves to sexual immorality and, and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of what? Eternal fire. There is a word eternal. Again, the idea, of course, the thought is, well, the word eternal means without end, so that means that they are still burning today. But are they still burning today? No. If eternal in this context meant without end, you would expect to go into the Middle East somewhere where this is located and still see fire somewhere. But that's not the case. In fact, the, uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah is probably somewhere uh, underneath the Dead Sea, um, around, that, uh, around that area. Okay? In fact, I have a home. Uh, some years ago, uh, a member of Murfreesboro visited the area, and she brought me a jar of the ashes of Sodom and Gomorrah that she got from that area. They sell these things. I mean, they get, they get your money somehow, right? They're selling dirt. <laughs> but she brought me that, and, uh, and you know, you unscrew it, and it still has that uh, sulfurish smell. Yeah. So I have it at home. Yeah. So again, we know that Sodom and Gomorrah is not, it's not burning today. So obviously, eternal in, in this passage cannot mean something without end, because otherwise they would still be burning today. Now, in Mark chapter 9, I would say Mark's chapter, uh, the, chapter I'm gonna sh- uh, the verses I'm going to share with you now are probably the most tricky for many people when they come to this issue of everlasting fire, eternity, being, you know, burned forever. So Mark chapter 9, um, well, notice there, eternal, eternal, eternal does not always mean without end. This is one thing that we need to understand. Eternal does not always mean without end. It means without end sometimes, as we're going to see here in a little bit, but it does not always mean without end. Now, let's look at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48. Now, here in Mark chapter 9, Mark, this is Mark's equivalent to what Jesus talked in Matthew 18. Again, being bold to get rid of sin in your life. This is Mark's equivalent, but he has a, little, a few more details that we don't read in, Mark, in Matthew. Notice what it says. And I've highlighted in red those areas that are a bit tricky for some. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed 
rather than having two hands to go to hell into, notice, the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life may a lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter in the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell, into hellfire, where their, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so what gets many people is this issue of the fire that is not quenched. Because if in, in, our, in our mindset, if a fire is not quenched, that means that it goes on and on and on and on. Okay? You know, as you know, some, uh, some of you know, I was a firefighter at one point. And in my career, I, I actually um, was at the scene of some unquenchable fires. Here's an example I want to show you here from Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia, <clears throat> very old city, and so after World War I, there was, uh, during that industrial age time, they started building factories everywhere. And so in Philadelphia, there are um, buildings, I mean, these factories were two, three blocks, city blocks. I mean, these are huge buildings, especially in North Philadelphia and West Philadelphia. And so once in a while, these buildings would catch on fire. Now, uh, most of these buildings by then are, are you know, unoccupied. Okay, there was nothing in them, but sometimes people get in there to do drugs and do kinds of things, and all of a sudden, the place catches on fire. And because they're so big, and whatever material is in there, these fires spread very rapidly. So this is a multi-alarm fire. Multi-alarm fire means that there's a lot of fire trucks there, there's a lot of firefighters there, because the fire is so big. And the fire is so intense, it's so big... There's, there's fire apparatuses all around the building. As you can see there, they're shooting water inside the building. Okay? But no matter how much water they shoot into the building, the fire is not extinguished. Because the fire is so big and the heat is so intense that no matter what firefighters do, they can't extinguish the fire. And so the strategy there is then to protect the adjacent structure. So they want to make sure that it, the fire doesn't spread to other buildings, okay? And they usually spend uh, sometimes even days in a fire that big, okay? Again, no matter how much water they, put, uh, they throw into the fire, the fire does not go out. This is an unquenchable fire, an example of an unquenchable fire, because no matter what firefighters do, no matter how much water is, is thrown into it, it doesn't go out. But eventually, what happens? It burns itself out, and that's the, that's the part of the strategy. They stay around. They continue putting water into it, but they don't go in there. This is an exterior attack. The, the idea is they spend hours there, and then go on. A lot of times, they, they, the fire starts early in the, in the night and goes on into the morning, and eventually, they stay there, and, and once the combustible material is destroyed, the fire burns itself out. That's just common sense. It's physics 101. Now, again, um, what happens when a big fire like this is that firefighters are detailed throughout the week just to make sure that hot spots are put out and that kind of thing, that the fire is not rekindled. But again, this was an example of an unquenchable fire that no matter what, again, the issue here is no matter what human effort is placed into it, it will not go out. 
but eventually it does burn itself out once the material is destroyed. And so this is, in essence, what unquenchable fire means in Scripture. And let me give you an example. Let me give you an example from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 20. This is talking about the judgment coming upon the Jews by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were coming into Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem, to destroy the temple. This is what Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah says. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out in this place, O man, uh, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn with, notice, and not be quenched. <clears throat> so Jeremiah is talking about an unquenchable fire that was coming upon the Jews by the Babylonians. Jerusalem still burning today? If, 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 this, if a fire that's not quenched meant that it burns on forever and ever, then you would expect to see Jerusalem still burning today. But we know that's not the case. So it also must, not, must mean that not being quenched does not necessarily mean that it goes on forever and ever without end. It simply means that no matter what effort the Jews placed on it, it was not going to change. The, the city was going to burn up. And it did burn up, didn't it? The Babylonians destroyed the city and they destroyed the temple as well. So in this case, obviously, being a fire that is not quenched does not mean necessarily that will go on without end, without end. It doesn't mean that. In fact, in the New Testament, there's a word that is often used, Gehenna, um, to, to talk about what hell is, the word Gehenna. And Gehenna simply was the, um, the dumpster of the, of the area. Right? And so there was a dumpster of the area. What they would do is they would you know, obviously burn trash there. They would also burn um, uh, sometimes even the bodies of criminals that were condemned to death. They would burn them there. And this was an ongoing thing. They keep on pu putting fi uh, trash in there. So it was a sort of an incinerator. And the incinerator would continue to burn because there was always trash being brought in there. So there was always combustible material being brought to the fire. And, of course, the fire went on and on and on because there was always combustible material. But now, if you take the combustible material out, the fire goes out. It's just a common sense. It's physics 101, friends. Okay? So context usually reveals... If the word eternal or everlasting referred to a time without end, or if it refers to a simply a long time. And of course you ask, well, how do we know what the difference is? What's the word? Context, right? Context will reveal this. Let me give you an example. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, let me ask you a question. Is perishing and having eternal life or everlasting life the same thing? Is it the same thing? You sure? Some of you are not sure. Is it the same thing? No, of course not. Of course not. We know that Jesus died to give us eternal life, right? We know that the original plan of God was that we were, not, we were not supposed to die. We were supposed to live forever, okay? But sin put a, a problem into the, the whole thing and, and separates us from God and the wages of sin is death, okay? But Jesus resolved the problem, and those of you who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life can take this to the bank. You will have eternal life without end, okay? 
But the word perish does not mean eternal life. The word perish, if you look at the dictionary, simply means to be destroyed, to cease to exist. So there's only two alternatives. There's only two options. Either you perish or you have eternal life. Because they're both not the same thing. Now think about this carefully, because I think our, 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 our Christian friends a lot of times don't look at this, don't, at least don't use logic. If we had an immortal soul, and if I was a wicked person and went to that place called hell, where I'm being tortured forever and ever without end, it still means that I'm alive. Because if I'm being tortured and I know about it, I am alive. So that would mean that both wicked and righteous get eternal life. But that's not what the Bible says. Only the righteous get eternal life. The wicked perish. And perishing means to be destroyed. So it's not the same thing. Now in this context, we know based on what Jesus came to do, yes, that, that everlasting there means without end. Because that's what Jesus came to do. But perishing does not mean the same thing. It's two different things, friends. It's two different things. Again, sometimes we just got to uh, look a little closer to the passage. We are promised a resurrection, aren't we? In, in, the, in the very same book, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves, not, it's just, not some people, all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. But here's the caveat. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. We are promised a resurrection of life, if Jesus is Savior and Lord of your life. But make no mistake, the wicked also will resurrect. And they will resurrect to face judgment and to face destruction. Life will continue in heaven for the redeemed, but for those who do not accept Jesus, they will experience eternal death. And that death is also without end. They will resurrect at at the end of the thousand years, as you know. But they will face the judgment, and Revelation 20, verse 9 says, Fire comes down from heaven on a God and devours them. Now, we've already discussed the meaning of the term everlasting and eternal. It doesn't always mean without end. Context reveals if it's without end or for a long duration. But now, what about hell? Actually, I, I, this is a passage I just told you about. Revelation 20, verse 9. Fire comes down from heaven out of God and devours them. That's what happens to the wicked. But what about hell? Is there a place called hell? Is hell real? Is hell biblical? So I, I, I hear some... some <laughs> see, see the, the, the issue here is that uh, most of uh, uh, Christianity and even non-Christians believe to be hell to be a literal place where the, where the devil is uh, in charge of it, right? The devil is in charge of it. He is the CEO, if you will, of, of hell. And he has his staff. The, the fallen angels would be his staff in the place called hell, okay? And it is the devil and his fallen angels who administer this torture, right? That, that, that's how you understand. That's, that's basically the, the idea of what hell is. Now, again, some of these things are just simply common sense, but people don't see it. If that was true, if there was a literal place, and by the way, when, when we think about where hell is, 
you know, there's two ideas about where hell is. Either it's underneath our, our, our feet here, somewhere in the ground there, underneath the, the earth, right? That's where hell is. Or some people feel that hell is going to be somewhere in a remote corner of space, you know, and maybe on another planet or whatever case may be. Some people believe that that's where hell is. Regardless, it is a place. And in that place, the devil's in charge and his staff, and he, and, and, and he directs, you know, his staff to administer the torture. But if that's true, that would mean that the devil works for God. Think about it. Somebody has to administer the torture. And it must be the devil. Because the devil's in hell, right? The devil and his, and his fallen angels. Okay? They are in hell. Which would mean, think about this, that the devil and the fallen angels get eternal life. Now think about it. What sense does that make? Do the, does the devil get, get eternal life? Is he rewarded with life even though he is the one that caused sin in the first place? Of course not. Now, some others will say, well, maybe it isn't the devil that administers it. Maybe it's God that administers it. Well, that's even more ludicrous because the Bible says that God is love. A God that does that torture is not a God of love. He's a sadist, and that's what Satan wants us to believe. See, this is why Satan has come up with this story about hell and eternal punishment because he wants us to believe that. He wants to construe the character of God. This is why this is so important, friends. Again, if we, if we just stop to think about this logically using common sense, even if we don't fully understand the Bible, just using common sense will reveal this. The devil is not going to get eternal life. In fact, the book of Ezekiel says he's going to be destroyed too. That fire that comes from heaven out of, out of God will destroy the devil and his angels too. Amen? Sin will be put to, uh, to, it's a permanent solution to sin. It's a permanent solution, friends. Now, I, just, I already mentioned one word that is used for hell, which is Gehenna. Now, um, there are two other words in Scripture that have commonly used, uh, translated as hell. In the Old Testament, you have the word Sheol. and In the New Testament, you have the word Hades. The word Hades in the New Testament. Now, the word Sheol occurs 65 times in the Old Testament. And it is often translated as grave, hell, pit, or death. The same word, Sheol, is translated in different ways. And you see there an example in, in, in Genesis 37, 35, the words of, of Jacob. When, when he heard that Joseph had died, he was mourning. And he says, for I shall go down into the Sheol, the grave. He's not talking that he was going to hell to be tortured by the devil forever and ever. He, was, he wanted to die. He, his son has died, and, and he wanted to die with him. I will go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. It's the word that is used, a word that is translated as hell in the Old Testament, okay? In the New Testament, you have the word Hades. Again, I, I mentioned Gehenna already. Here's another one, Hades. And now here's, a, this one's a little bit more trickier because Hades, if, if those of you familiar with Greek uh, philosophy, Greek mythology, have heard about Hades. Hades is translated as the abode of departed spirits, okay? But now, Hades was the god of the underworld in, in Greek philosophy. And where does the, the, the doctrine of immortality of the soul come from? Greek philosophy. Okay? So it all comes from paganism. Remember, that comes into Christianity. He is the god of the underworld. Okay? Now, interestingly enough, some of you may not know this, but the Jews, by the time of Jesus, the Jews already believed in the immortality of the soul. 
Because remember, the Greek culture had already influenced them. Okay? And so this is why Jesus, for example, shares the parable of, of the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, now remember, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus has nothing to do with what happens when a person dies. It was a totally different uh, uh, teaching, totally unrelated to the props of the, of the parable. But the reason Jesus uses it is because they're familiar with it. Because they already believe by this time in the immortality of the soul. It comes from Greek philosophy and it seeped into Judaism, into Judaism and unfortunately seeped into Christianity as well. And this is why we think about it. This is why Christians believe this today. Okay? So the view of Hades as a place of torment eventually creeped into the Christian church and influenced Bible translators. This is very important. The Bible translators did not ne- didn't have any necessarily any malice when they translated this word as Hades, that, uh, this word um, Hades as hell. They didn't have any malice. They simply translated it in the best way they thought because of, the, of what they were t- taught by then, what they believed. And so that's how it was translated. This is why it's important to see what the original word meant, what the original word meant. But let me give you an example of how this word is used to see that it does not necessarily mean the abode of the departed. And this is the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven, twenty-three. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have, been, it would have remained until this day. Now, in this passage, Jesus is, is, taught, is rebuking the cities which he had done many of his mighty works because they did not repent. And so here in verse 23, he's actually making a contrast. Capernaum had exalted itself to the highest place, to heaven. But it will be brought down to the lowest, which was the earth. But that earth is translated as Hades. So you see, Hades does not necessarily mean a place where you go and burn for eternity without end. That's not what the word means. Again, we need to look at the original context. We need to look at the original words to see what they actually mean, friends. So we can safely conclude, friends, that the word hell, in both Old and New Testaments, never refers to a place of eternal torment. Not once. Not once. And hell is the grave, the Sheol, the place of rest. However, since this is a common belief among Christianity today, through the present truth message, God seeks to clear up the misunderstanding and vindicate his character. Because trust me, friends, you, you may know of this. You may know of people. Maybe this has been your experience too. But I, I have heard many people who give up Christianity, who turn their backs on God simply because they feel a God of love will not do that. Because remember, a God that tortures people with, for eternity for the sins you committed in, 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 in the life. And think about this. Even if you, if, you, if you live to 100 years old, let's just say you live to 100 years old. And um, in, in that time, you, you, you weren't necessarily a wicked person. But you never accepted Jesus as Savior, so you don't have salvation. So God is going to punish you for eternity without end for the sins you committed in 100 years. So what's 100 years compared to eternity? Think about this. I mean, again, logic. If I told you that when John Luke was small, I told him one day to take the trash out. He said, yeah, I'm going to take the trash out. But he didn't take the trash out. I got so mad at him that I spanked him with a two-by-four 
for seven hours because he didn't like to take the trash out. Would you think I'm a good father? I wouldn't be here. I'd be locked up right now, wouldn't I? Somebody will, Lucy would have turned me in. There she is right there. She would have turned, and, 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 and with reason. That's, that's physical abuse. Now, if we think that with a human being, now we are sinful anyway, but if we think that, that a good father would not do that to their children, how is it that we believe that God does it? Because that's the, next, the same equivalent. God punished you for eternity without end for, without end for the sins you committed in, in, in the life uh, in 100 years, even if you lived 100 years. We're saying, we're saying that God does the same thing, and all of a sudden that's fine. We, we, God, it's, it's okay for God to do it, but if you do it, you go to jail. Come on, friends. Common sense. The Bible says God is love. He's not a sadist. He's not a sadist, friends. Now, uh, just an example. So uh, um, when I was in Murfreesboro, Jerry, um, this man Jerry, he called the church, and um, he wanted to speak to somebody, so I was the one who answered the phone, and so I, I, speak, to, I speak to Jerry, and he had been uh, raised in the Baptist uh, denomination, and so, you know, that's fire and brimstone kind of thing, but he had the same issue. I cannot reconcile a God of love with a God who punishes people for eternity. And he had a problem, and he, and he was considering leaving the whole thing because he just couldn't reconcile. So we had a conversation, and that conversation led to a friendship. Uh, it led for us to start studying the Bible together. Now, and this, this took a process of about a year, but eventually both he and his wife Susan accepted the Lord and were baptized, and today they serve um, as leaders in the, in the Columbia Church. <laughs> the character of God was cleared up, friends. So to summarize, now we're summarizing now the second angel's message, because this is why, uh, where we are right now. Babylon, we talked about Babylon, is a religious political power or system that defies God, confuses the world, and oppresses God's people. Huh? Thus, it is the enemy of both God and his people. Now we've already seen by the characteristics that Babylon represents Roman Catholicism. Okay, now again, this is not something we've come out pulled out of our own pocket because this is the way it was thought back in, in the time of the Reformation. Yes. This was part of the Protestant Reformation. It's just now we're, we're politically correct and we can't say those things. Again, we've got to say it in love. We're not here to bash anybody, but we've got to make sure that we understand that this is what the Bible is teaching us. Notice that they, remember, they call themselves the Mother Church. Remember, we, we saw in Revelation 17, 15, uh, uh, well, in, in the chapter 17, that Babylon is the mother of harlots. Remember that? So notice... She is the mother, the mother of harlots, mother church. The daughters represent Protestantism because they carry on the same teachings that come from Catholicism. Okay? Now, the way that Babylon has been able to confuse the Christian world is by making them drink of the wine of the wrath of the fornication. Now, we've seen that the fornication are these false teachings that arise that have their origin in Catholicism, but that, unfortunately, is still being taught in Protestantism today. And among them, we've, as we saw already, we've studied both. Uh, there are many false teachings. Again, read the book and you'll see that there's a number of things that originated from Catholicism. But the greatest, as we saw earlier, Sunday sacredness and the immortality of the soul as part of those teachings that have confused Christianity today. Okay? This is present truth, friends. To proclaim the second angel's message is to expose Babylon, 
as Roman Catholicism and to explain the role of Protestantism in propagating these false teachings that have damaged God's character. This is present truth, friends. This is present truth. And by saying this, we're saying, friends, that the reason for our existence is to proclaim these truths. God wants to prepare a world to meet Jesus when he comes, and that's happening pretty soon. That's happening pretty soon. But now, you know, the last two messages of the presentation of the, of the series, we have been talking a lot about death. And death is sort of a, a somber subject, isn't it? I don't know if people like to talk about death. But, you know, the reality is, you know, they, they say there's two sure things in life. What are they? Taxes and death. Taxes and death. death and taxes. It's a reality. But friends, death does not have to be a somber subject if you have received Jesus as Savior and Lord. Because friends, the morning is coming. Amen. The morning of the resurrection is coming. We will awaken. Those who have died in Christ will resurrect first, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In the book, Remember Death, by, um, Remember Death The Surprising Path to Living Hope is the title of the book, by Matthew McCullough. He says something very interesting. I want you to pay attention to this. He says, death is a biological event. The end of the heart's beating, the lungs breathing, and the brain's processing. But it is also far more. There's no confining death to the moment at which your life ends. Its effects are everywhere. Death is not so much an event as a process with a final culmination. A siphoning process that separates us from that, from that which we love so that in the end, everyone loses everything. But when we recognize this truth, when we acknowledge it and don't shrink back from it, we join the path to deeper, fuller joy in the promise of a deathless world where what we, what we love won't ever pass away. A world promised to us by the one who is the resurrection of life. Friends, that resurrection will happen soon. That eternal life is indeed without end. You know, one day, Jesus, we believe Jesus is coming soon. He's taking us home. When we all get to heaven, John, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.